am reading from Luke 2, 8 through 20 today. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which are just as they had been told. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today, God, for this Sunday. It is a good day to be in your house and to worship you. Lord, I pray that you give us humble hearts. Fill our hearts today, God. Um, let your spirit be with us. Let your spirit fill this room, God. I pray that you give Steve the words um, to share your message, God, and just anoint him um, and give him the grace that he needs as well. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to see you today. Um, we've been talking uh, about this series called Wonder, and uh, we've been asking, hoping uh, that we would restore that sense of wonder uh, as we read the Christmas story and as we enter into the Christmas season uh, that sometimes I feel like maybe we miss because of all the busyness, because of all the stuff, because of all of the uh, tension sometimes that we experience during the holiday season. The detail that we're offered in our text today from Luke, who's writing his gospel or his biography of Jesus, uh, is a part of the case that he's making for what God did through Jesus, okay? And so it starts out here as he's telling this story. We, we talked about Mary, we talked about Joseph, and now we're going to be talking about the shepherds this week. At the time when Luke was writing, though, there was none of the sentimentality attached to this story that we have now. Because when we read the story about the shepherds, we all have these images in our heads that come to, you know, um, shepherds and, you know, an, you know, angels like looking down and, you know, halos from their head. We all have a reference point and we've sentimentalized the story quite a bit uh, with good reason. It's attached to good memories for some of us or maybe, uh, you know, we, we recognize where the story is going. But at the time when Luke was writing, this story was a curious and controversial story. There was making some serious claims here. The claim was God had visited his people and done for them what they could never do for themselves. That was the claim. God had actually visited his people. And let me tell you, there wasn't anybody then, just the same way as I don't think there's anybody today, who really takes that claim lightly. If we take it seriously, we certainly can't take it lightly. The story began with a, a census driven by tax law. So it's good to know that some things don't really ever change, right? 
and a family from a small town in Palestine making an uncomfortable journey to a city called Bethlehem. But in our text, this moment of the birth of that child is punctuated with a blinding, terrifying burst of light and an angelic announcement to shepherds on a hillside. Now, I don't know if any of you today uh, would have, this is the thing about, um, you know, when the days get shorter. I don't know if you know, but Christmas is about uh, situated at about the shortest day of the year, roughly. I think it's called the winter solstice or something like that. But somewhere around December is where we have the shortest day of the year. And that's when the days here in Chicagoland are the darkest, right? Because you, like, get up and it's dark. And then you go to work and then you can watch a beautiful sunset at lunchtime, right? <laughs> it's, like, so short. <laughs> and, and it, you know, and so sometimes you might, some of you here probably have to get dressed in the dark, right? If you've ever done that, it's a bad idea. Uh, you come out, you know, your clothes don't match, your hair is all busted, your face doesn't look right, you're just off. Most of us need that, those few moments in the light in the morning to fix whatever has gone wrong at night, if that makes sense. And things just tend to get off uh, during the nighttime. I, I like to say, you know, that moment of ha having light exposes so much about a person, it's really important, I've always encouraged those who are young adults uh, in the house, I've always encouraged people, when you're choosing to go on a date, especially the first few dates, it's common, but there's a, there's a, you know, there's a real strategy behind this. You need to choose a dark place, right? That's why you go out to dinner, like maybe like 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and you choose a dimly lit place. Because for most of us, and I just say this honestly, for most of us, we look our best when you can't see us that well right? That's, it's kind of like the way it works. And so you don't want to have like an early morning breakfast meeting, you know, in the sunshine. You want to save that for later when they're like, whoa, but I guess I like you already. So <laughs> that's what you want. Because light always tends to show detail and it exposes things. When we get to know people for, uh, uh, after a while, if we like them, we tend to look past their faults. But after knowing somebody for a long time, and all the married people can say amen to this, you see, no matter how wonderful that person, no matter how perfect they seemed before you were married to them, if you didn't find their flaws before you were married, you will after marriage, right? We have to imagine so much about people that are just kind of either on stage or you know, celebrity type people who are, we, we always fill in the, in the blanks very generously, but when we get to know people, we find out that they have faults just like everybody else. Let me just encourage you today. It's not that way with God. You may have heard some good things, you may have heard some good things about God, and you might be wondering, when is the shoe going to drop? When am I going to find out how bad? There is no bad news about God. As a matter of fact, God has so many facets and dimensions that you and I could spend our lifetimes searching him out every day and literally never end, find, never, never reach the bottom, really, of all the good things about God. I have this image in my head of uh, just, just kind of hit me the one day when, 
you know, there's this passage in Revelation, there's even a passage in Isaiah where it talks about this, where there are these angelic beings, okay? They're not like you and me. They're, they're weird. And the Bible describes them, and you're like, whoa, is this trippy? What was going on here with these people who were saying? They said, we saw this, and they're trying to describe these beings, and they appear to be, like, uh, different than you and me. But day and night around the throne of God, they are bowing before God, and they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they lift their eyes up again to God, and then they bow down again and they say it. And it seems like such monotony, right? It seems like, man, uh, what, is, what is the reason they do this? And I, had, I just have this idea, this thought that perhaps those beings and you and me, as a matter of fact, it even talks about other, other people in heaven doing this, that you and me will never tire of seeing God. Because there are so many different dimensions to his goodness that We'll be able to lift our eyes to him, but whoa, whoa, holy, holy, you are amazing, God. You are awesome, God. And, that, and then once, we, once we've finished praising him for that, we'll lift our eyes up again. Whoa, whoa, it's something different there. And we're going to be able to say, God, you are so good. This is what I think happened to the shepherds. The light broke through the darkness. The angels made this announcement, and I think they had a revelation of God in a way that they had never seen him before. You see, I got two points today, and you'll be happy to hear that. At Christmas... First point, we are surprised to find that God is better than our best thoughts about him. That's what I think these shepherds, they had ideas about God. They were living in, they were, they were a, a part of a Jewish people who had a long history with God. But I am guessing, I am betting that there was something that changed in their hearts at that point of announcement where they realized this God can't be pinned down. We don't have him figured out. He is better than our best thoughts about him. In Isaiah chapter 6, the the prophet Isaiah has this really unsettling experience. He talks about it. He's writing almost like a memoir, and he says, I was on my way to church, and I saw the person, I got to church, and I saw the person that I last expected to see, like some of you guys, God. <laughs> He's like, I didn't really expect to see him like that. I think people come to church all the time, and they don't expect to see God. Sad thing here, here's an aside, not in the notes, but the sad thing is we can have church we can have a great church service and God could possibly not show up at all, <laughs> right? I've, our prayer is that when people come to New City Church, and our prayer is not just for New City Church, but every church in this area and every church, that when, people get, when God's people gather, that God would show up and that when you come, when you're here, that you'd see God in a new way, that, you would, that your heart would be touched in a way and, and changed by what you see. Just like Isaiah, he sees God. He's been to the temple so many times before, and he sees him now. He says the train of his robe filled the temple, and, and he falls on his face, and he's shook, the Bible says, my translation. Abraham was surprised when God spoke to him out of nowhere. Jacob fell asleep in this one place and wakes up. He has a vision of God, and he wakes up, and he says, surely God was here, and I didn't even know it before. Think about that. Moses sees the burning bush and is so surprised he takes his shoes off. Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, was surprised when she found out that in her old age she was pregnant, and Zechariah, her husband, couldn't even talk. Surprise. Jesus' own disciples had some set of expectations that they had to constantly revise to understand what was going on in the ministry of this Jesus. They were like, wait a second. This is, this is hard for me to figure out. They were like, I don't understand it. But 
later on, the gospel writers would, would kind of painstakingly try and explain how Jesus had fulfilled every one of the prophet's words, but how he had done it in an unexpected way. Jesus had fulfilled every hope of God among his people, and yet no one was actually prepared for it. Think about that. I mean, from their perspective, God should have hit the ground running, birthed as an emperor or at least some kind of nobleman. Why not be born in a Roman palace complete with servants and senators like they knew about, court musicians playing and ambitious, uh, you know, young aristocrats jockeying for the chance to glimpse the new king. The way that was the way it was done in those days, just like in our day. But this isn't what God chose to do, not even, not even close. God breezed past the preened and the powerful, and he leapt on to lesser men and lesser women. He sent the angel choir to this group of shepherds, this rabble of shepherds, and welcomed the Christ child with nothing more than the sound of baying sheep and rustling cattle. And if this is how God acts, you might say, then is there any telling what he's going to do next? If this is the way that God behaves, if this is what God chooses to do, then what else does he have up his sleeve? I wonder if he chose the shepherds because they didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing songs to shepherds and that saviors aren't found wrapped in rags laying in a feeding trough. We like to think that we're on board with the Christmas plan, but that's what we call hindsight bias because we know how the story's going to go, right? That means that we, we know the end of it, and so we're like, oh, that's a great story. I, I could totally see how that happens. But were we in the story at that moment, we'd have some questions, right? We'd say, this seems really sketchy. God, born to a peasant girl, laid in a feeding trough, weak and vulnerable? How does this happen? Are you sure, God? We make that mistake all the time. We second guess the way that God has made us. That's why I think that song is really powerful that Celeste was singing, I Am Who You Say I Am, because every, there's so many people in here who, who were second-guessing the way that God made you to be, saying, well, why can't I be more like them? <laughs> why shouldn't I be more like them? And God says, well, I made you with purpose. I made you with specifically designed to be a blessing. And so why would you second-guess it? This is the plan, God says. And I know that that's hard for us to get on board with, but I think that's what I'm, what I'm taking out of the Christmas story here, what I'm trying to pull out for us this week. We second guess so much, but if God is better than our best thoughts about him, or if, as Paul said, God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom, <laughs> he almost, he says this, he, I love how Paul makes that disclaimer, if God could be foolish, <laughs> which he can't be, he says God's foolishness would still be wiser than our wisdom, <laughs> If that's the case, then we shouldn't assume that his plan is going to be what we expect or what we want. The way that he made you is specific to you, and you should rejoice in that. As a matter of fact, we should spend less energy debating with God and more energy discerning how God is acting and how God has purposed for you and me to follow his example in our present circumstances. God is better than our best thoughts about him. Secondly, at Christmas, we're surpri surprised to find that God prefers the humble and the vulnerable. Somehow, these shepherds made it to the top of the announcement list. They were the first. Think about that. They got the news before kings or priests, the wealthy or the well-connected. 
So how did a group of nobodies get such a sought-after ticket, <laughs> right? How is that possible? And we come to a point here where I want, I, I want to share something with you that for me has been uh, almost like a paradigm. It really shifted when I understood this about God. And I could pull this thread through so many different parts of the Old Testament and, of course, into the Christmas story and into the New Testament. But let me just help you understand something about God. Because God loves, there's certain points where God is introduced in the Old Testament. And he's always introduced as the God who is almighty, right? Whom, I'm just going to give it to you right here. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords. That means there's nobody above him. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And here's what the writer is saying. God is great, the great God, mighty and awesome in every way. And the way that he expresses his greatness is that he cares for those who have nothing to give him in return. Look what Zechariah 9 and 10 says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Don't oppress the, wid the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. And Psalm 146 says it like this. God is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoner free, gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous, and he watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. It's almost like this. God over and over again in the Bible is introducing himself as almighty God. But then he says, if you want to know about the almighty God, this is how I want you to know me. I'm the one who works justice for the widow and for the fatherless, for the immigrant and for the poor. And the reason he's, it's almost like this. He says, you know what? There, I don't know if some of you guys know this. I'm going to kind of take a step back here because uh, years ago I, I started a business. And it was just me. And there was, you know, uh, over time there were a couple other employees. But... When you have a small business, you get to call yourself whatever you want, right? And, and so I had to have a business card, and I was like, okay, well, we're going to put my name as Steve Andres, and what am I going to call myself? CEO? <laughs> Founder? Big boss? Whatever you know, want to say. Like, whatever I want to call myself, I can. And, and the, it was so great. There would be times where, in, as a part of the business, I'd be interviewing some, some uh, you know, uh, CEOs of some large companies, Fortune 100 companies. And I would, I would have this joke that I would always do with them where I would say, hey, okay, well, listen, CEO to CEO. <laughs> and they would always get a big kick out of that because I knew, they knew it was such a small operation that I had going on, Right. This is what God decides to put on his card. Of all the things that he could put on his business card to introduce himself, he says, I'm the one who defends the widow and the fatherless. I'm the one who looks out for the immigrant and for the poor. That's the way I want to be known. That's the way I want to be introduced, God says. Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, an author and a, and a philosopher, he calls these four groups of people the quartet of the vulnerable. The widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. And all throughout the Bible, God is introducing himself as the one who is great beyond measure, but whose measureless greatness is expressed most vividly and pointedly in his generosity and care toward those who have nothing to give him in return. This week, I was struck by, uh, it, unexpectedly, I was, I was moved by watching the funeral of George H.W. Bush. 
I was actually in a place where the TVs were on. I was uh, out at a coffee shop, and the TVs were on, and everybody had stopped to watch this, and so I was just kind of pulled in. Not hard for me to get like sucked into that kind of stuff. And, and I was watching the whole thing, and it was powerful. It was moving. It was very, very interesting to see the praise and the eulogizing of a man who had been in the highest position, at least in our modern day, the most powerful person in the world who had served as the president of the United States. But what they praised him for over and over again was that he was a loyal friend. He was a man who made peace. He was a faithful husband. He was a caring father. He was a man who kept his word and could be trusted. He was a man who had put his life on the line for other people. And I just was struck by this as tears were flowing. People around, there was a man, a businessman at the counter they're watching this and I was watching as as they were doing the eulogy how he was wiping away tears I kind of embarrassed like don't let anybody see this and I was thinking isn't it interesting what moves us so much about the great men like that is that we say they were great yes they were great they had power they had influence but what made them great was their loyalty their faithfulness all the things that are true about our God are what we love in those kind of people that was interesting we instinctively know that greatness is rooted in generosity and care for the least of these. After being terrified and startled and then delighted by the angelic announcement, the shepherds in our story, they rejoiced and they praised God. I would say if we aren't startled by or surprised by the love of God at Christmas time, then we aren't thinking about it correctly. Tim Keller pastor of New York Presbyterian Church, he says this, what is Christianity? If you think Christianity is mainly going to church, believing a certain creed, and living a certain kind of life, then there'll be no note of wonder or surprise about the fact that you're a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You'll say, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Why do you ask? Christianity is, in this view, something done by you. And so there's no astonishment about being a Christian. However, if Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there is a constant note of surprise and wonder. That God would choose you and me is a miracle. The goal here is to get our head around the good news, the announcement that was being made first to these shepherds and then on through the ministry of Jesus. You don't move on from this good news onto more mature things any more than you move on when you're building from a foundation. <laughs> you build upon it. Our experience in, our understanding of, and our joy in the gospel, in the good news that God would send his son out of love for you and me to take our place and to take our shame, that is the foundation that we ought to be building on if we're to be the people that God has called us to be. Just two chapters after this in the Gospel of Luke, Luke records the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus stands up in his hometown at the synagogue, at the church there, and he has the scroll, which was there and present in every one of these synagogues. He has it opened up to Isaiah, and there he reads from a passage in Isaiah 61, and he says this, and Luke records what Jesus reads. Luke chapter 4 says, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, do you see the quartet of the vulnerable in there? Do you see Jesus saying, this is why I've come? And then Jesus makes this statement to everybody there. He says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, right now, this scripture is being fulfilled. And he's saying, I'm the one doing it. Now, what's striking about Jesus reading this passage, and I remember writing a paper on this years ago at Wheaton College. I don't know if I ever find it, but it it was the beginning of my understanding of this, that Luke was setting the paradigm. He said, this is what Jesus did. He read this, and what's striking about it is he cuts that passage from Isaiah off mid verse, mid thought. Because if you go back to the passage in Isaiah, it says that Isaiah is talking about this servant of God. It says that he has been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but it says, and to declare the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus drops that off. And it wasn't because Jesus was trying to be friendly to everybody there, because Jesus knew how to be unfriendly. Jesus talked about bringing good news, proclaiming the year of God's favor, of God's grace, but he drops the part about bringing judgment. Why? The answer, I think, is that Jesus did not come to bring the judgment of God. He came to bear the judgment of God. Here's the startling news of Christmas time. The maker of mankind submitted himself to the weakness and to the frailty of humanness. That's startling. It's almost like this. The ruler of mankind made himself a subject and a servant to all. The judge of all mankind took the punishment for our crime and for our sin and took upon himself the weight of your and my selfishness. Jesus chose poverty so that we could be rich. Jesus chose ultimately to be bound and to be imprisoned so that we could be free. Jesus chose to be cut off from the Father so we could be adopted as his sons and daughters. Jesus chose death so that we could be alive. That's the good news. And if you're here today, and and for you, that's something that stirs your heart, but you say, I don't know if I've ever understood that quite like that before. Let me help you understand. That's the Christmas message. That's the gospel, the good news that those angels were announcing to people who nobody else cared about and nobody else, nobody else really had any place for them. And God said, these are the ones that I'm going to give this precious announcement to first. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. 